0: God, we thank you so much for this morning. And Lord, we thank you that you are a sovereign God. Lord, because we believe you're sovereign, we also believe that no one is here by accident. Lord, that you have drawn each and every person here for a specific purpose. And that purpose is to hear from you, from your word. So we pray that you would convict and challenge and reveal and Lord, stir up things in our hearts through your spirit and in the power of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't know if you've heard, but Taylor Swift is uh, coming to Indianapolis in 2024. Uh, I I don't know this by uh, just, you know, my personal uh, experience, but I hear it's impossible to get a ticket. Uh, to one of her concerts. So if you've tried to do that, you're likely going to fail. But let me leave you with something uh, that's just as good. This is a quote by her. Um, I never thought I would open a sermon quoting Taylor Swift, but you'll see why in a moment, although my daughter's really excited right now. Um, She said this a few years ago. She said, happiness and confidence are the prettiest things you can wear happiness and confidence are the prettiest things uh, you can wear. She kind of expounded on that. She said that what people are really attracted to are happy, confident people, that confident individuals are happy individuals. Now, she's not alone in believing that. There's endless amount of research done by psychologists supporting that link between happiness and and confidence, that happiness, the uh, subjective feeling of personal well being, is a, a byproduct of self confidence, so they say. Now, if we agree that happiness is temporary, I, I might get behind that theory. But if I had a conversation with Taylor Swift and all these psychologists studying that link, I, I would tell them that there is something much, much better than temporary happiness that God offers a soul-satisfying joy in him. That there is this everlasting, overflowing joy that's found not in self-confidence. No, no the answer is not found within. The answer is not found in following your hearts. The answer is actually found outside of yourself, be- beyond yourself. The answer is found in putting your confidence in God. That soul-satisfying joy is found there. Confidence in God. It's an interesting way of putting it. It sounds similar, but not the same thing as trust in God or faith in God or belief in God. But they're not the same thing. This is something that I think King Saul lacked severely, confidence in God. And yet, it's something that his son, Jonathan, as we'll see in chapter 14 here, possessed. But what is confidence in God? How is it different than trusting God? And how do we cultivate a confidence in the Lord? Those are all questions that we're going to look at as we move through the first half of 1 Samuel chapter 14. We begin, and chapter 14 is building off of what we saw in chapter 13. These first couple of verses introduce us or remind us, really, of the key players in this passage. These first couple of verses remind us that we have King Saul, and then we have his son Jonathan, and yet it reminds us in a way that provides a stark contrast between them. There are lots of contrasts here I want to point out here. First, notice who Jonathan is with. And then who Saul is with. Verse one, we learn that Jonathan uh, is really only with his faithful armor bearer. It's the only one by his side. You put that in contrast to verse two, who is Saul with? Saul is not only with the 600 men from his, uh, his army that's dwindled down, but he's also with this priest named Ahijah. Now, who in the world is Ahijah. Well, verse 3 gives us more detail. You read verse 3, and it almost sounds like a kindergartner's prayer request. You know, please pray for my mom's, uncle's, brother's, neighbor's, cat who's broken leg, blah, 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 blah. Now, let's remind ourselves of what these names mean, who these people are in verse 3. We're reminded Ahijah's great-grandfather was Eli. Remember Eli. He's the priest, the judge in the beginning of 1 Samuel, a decent guy, not totally bad, but not totally good. But he had these two evil sons, and one of those sons is named Phineas. Now, Phineas is the grandfather of Ahijah here. He was evil. He was not a good guy. Verse 3 also tells us that Ahijah's uncle was Ichabod. Remember Ichabod from chapter 4? He was born at one of the lowest points in Israel's history. Do you remember his name? The meaning of his name is that the glory has departed. Okay, so that's Ahijah's uncle, Ezekiel. And he's coming from this priestly line that was already rejected. Remember, the Eli's priestly line has discontinued. So you've got Jonathan here with a faithful armor bearer. And then you've got Saul with this priest who's been rejected. Another contrast that we see is what Jonathan is doing and then what Saul is doing. Now, remember, the the scene is set for an epic battle. We have the Philistines, 36,000 Philistines versus only 600 Israelites. In verse 1 begins, it says, one day, which could be translated as, and the day came, the day of battle. But notice the focus is not on King Saul. The focus in verse one is on Jonathan. And notice what Jonathan is doing. Jonathan uh, is moving, He's, he's, he's acting, he's taking initiative with this specific plan of trying to put the Israelites in a better military position. Now what is Saul doing? Well, Saul in verse two, he's just sitting. He's he's hanging out in this pomegranate cave, which sounds like a, a name of a Disney resort. Just kinda hanging out. He's not doing anything. And he's on the outskirts of Gibeah at Migron, which was further back up in the hills, further south, further away from the Philistines and away from the battle, away from danger. It's an amazing contrast what's happening here in these first couple of verses. The text is saying, here are the main players in the story. You've got Saul, King Saul, who is sitting, hanging out in some bougie cave, probably drinking a latte, doing nothing. Far from danger, far from battle. His dynasty has been rejected. And he's hanging out with a priest whose priestly line has all already been rejected in comparison to Jonathan, Jonathan is showing us signs of what it looks like to take courageous action for the Lord. All right, scene is kind of set there for us to see that contrast. You move into verses four through seven and it zooms further into Jonathan and we see something amazing with Jonathan. We see an unshakable confidence in the Lord. Again, in verse one, we're told that Jonathan's plan was to go over to the Philistine garrison or the Philistine governor on the other side, which is the other side of the valley that separated Gibeah, which is where the Israelites were, and then two miles away, Michmash, where the Philistines were. Well, verse four provides more detail about that plan. And in verse four, we learn about the impossible geography uh, involved in Jonathan's plan. It says that within the passes, there were these two rocky, steep cliffs, and they have names. The reason why they have names is because they're known for something. Boses means slippery, and Sina means thorny. Now, that'll give you a boost of confidence before you embark on this dangerous mission while also being severely outnumbered. This is a difficult, dangerous terrain that Jonathan is going to go through, and he's severely outnumbered. Now, Why would he do this? Why would he put this plan into action? Well, it's because of verse six. Here's the reason why. This is my favorite verse in the chapter. Jonathan says to his faithful armor bearer, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Now I love Jonathan's fearlessness here. He even throws in some Old Testament trash talk. He kind of reduces the Philistines to just the uncircumcised people here. He says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. This is bold confidence in the Lord. This is something that his dad, King Saul, severely lacked. In chapter 13, we found Saul who was thrown into this frenzied, fearful panic because his big army dwindled down. And now Jonathan only has one companion, and yet he has this confidence that God can save. He displays utter confidence in the Lord. This is not teenage audacity. This is not impulsive stupidity. This is an unshakable trust in the Lord. God. Jonathan recognizes that this battle is not just between 36,000 Philistines and 600 Israelites. That this battle is between God's covenant people versus these godless, uncircumcised enemies of God. So it's God versus them. This confidence, though, had to have come from somewhere Right? He clearly didn't see it modeled by his father. So where did Jonathan get this from? It's likely that, that Jonathan recalled what happened in chapter 6 of 1 Samuel when God single-handedly defeated the Philistines without any military involvement by the Israelites. It's likely that Jonathan remembered what happened in the Exodus that God freed his people from Pharaoh, from the Egyptians with the 10 plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and and the powerful, miraculous acts of God. Perhaps Jonathan recalled Judges 6 and the fall of Jericho and the victory that God gave his people despite having a military position of weakness. Like this confidence likely came from recalling God's faithfulness in the past. And he probably used that to fuel his confidence in God right now in the presence. That if God did those powerful acts back then, then he can do them right now in this situation. And we're also going to see in just a few chapters, another individual who displayed great confidence in the Lord. Young David, chapter 17, verse 37, he is facing the great Philistine giant, Goliath, And David said this, that the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. David's experience of God's faithfulness in the past, from the lion, from the bear, fueled his confidence in God in the present when he faced Goliath. See, Jonathan is displaying a theme that resonates in almost every person that God uses, It's a conviction that God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. That God is of infinite power. We see this all throughout scripture. Genesis chapter 18, verse 14, when God told Abraham and Sarah, even though Sarah was barren, even though they were older in age, you're gonna have a son. You're gonna have many, many, many descendants. And it says this, is anything too hard for the Lord? Genesis 18, 14, or how about Job? Job 42, verse two, it says, I know that you, God, can do all things. Jeremiah the prophet declared, nothing is too hard for you, O God. Jesus pronounced in Matthew 19, verse 26, with God, all things are possible. Let me ask you this morning, do you believe that today? do you truly believe that nothing can hinder our God? Do you believe that nothing is too hard for God, that he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to do it? Like, do you honestly, truly believe that today? I don't know, sometimes our logical, realistic kind of default mindsets, I think it sometimes undercuts our belief that God can do anything? Do you believe that God can work in that situation that probably is popping in your mind right now that seems utterly impossible? Do you believe that God can work in that situation? Do you believe that God can save that person that's maybe popping in your mind right now that you think, no, there's no way that person's gonna be saved? Do you believe that God can fix or restore that aspect of your marriage that if you were honest, you probably think it's impossible to fix? Do you believe that God can heal that part of your body or someone that you love, that part of their body that the doctors have pronounced is broken and unfixable? Do you truly believe that nothing can hinder the Lord? Do you believe that that God can, period. Because <laughs> sometimes we, we think, yeah, God can, but he really does. Or we sometimes say God can, but he almost never does. So the reason why that's important is because if you don't believe that God can, period, then you will never trust God fully. Like if you, if you have this piece of you that says God can buts and you fill in the blank your foot is always on the brake of your trust in the Lord. Your trust in him, your belief in him will always be capped unless you have a theology of God can, period. If you're wondering, well, I don't know. Do I believe that God can do whatever he wants whenever he wants? Well, here's a quick way to find out. Just look at your prayer life. Look at what you pray about. Look at how often You pray. You can just read the transcripts of your prayer life over the years, and that will reveal your belief in God's omnipotence. Now, let me help us just a bit further. Maybe this will balance us out here. You might think, wow, our pastor is going a little crazy today. Look at verse 6. Look at this phrase here that Jonathan adds, this phrase, it may be. It's interesting to me. He says, it may be be that the lord will work for us some translations have the word perhaps perhaps the lord will work for us now this word perhaps is not it's not weakening jonathan's confidence in god this is not doubts but this is submission that he's expressing jonathan is allowing god to be god jonathan believes that god can save in any situation but he also believes that God is sovereign and God will only save if he chooses. So confidence or trust and belief in God, it's not always possessing this this outright certainty or this absolute positivity or this, this dogmatism that God will do A, B, and C. No, it's being confident that God can do A, B, and C but leaving it up to God if he will or not. Like we don't, we don't dictate to God what he does, what he should or should not do. Our faith in God, our confidence in God should be bold, but it also should be humble. And I think what Jonathan is demonstrating for us is so healthy because his confidence in the Lord avoided a prideful presumption upon God. That's what this word perhaps is doing. That this, without the word perhaps, we so often fall into this selfish and sinful entitlements where we begin to demand God to work in this specific way at this specific time. And so there's a little bit of a balance here that Jonathan is so wonderfully demonstrating for us. And I think it's a challenge for a lot of us. I think if we were really honest, we have that last phrase in verse six down for nothing can hinder the Lord, check. All right, and, that, and that's a good thing, absolutely. But do you also have that middle phrase down? It may be that the Lord will work for us. Or is your theology, no, 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 the Lord will work for us. <laughs> See, some of us need to adopt Jonathan's perhaps and integrate it into our theological framework for how God works. That true confidence in the Lord, it fully believes that God can do anything, but it leaves room for God to determine how and when that unfolds. That's confidence in the Lord. Now, before we move on to Jonathan's amazing plan here, I just got to hit on verse seven, just for a moment. I love verse seven. I love the, the loyalty and the love and kind of the faithfulness that this armor bearer shows to Jonathan. Jonathan's plan's crazy. It's outrageous. They're severely outnumbered going through this dangerous terrain. And he responds, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Man, that's so good. Like we all need an armor bearer in our life, don't we? We need somebody who is going to encourage us, who's going to be faithful and who has our back. You need an armor bearer in your life. And Jonathan had that. Well, let's move into Jonathan's courageous plan, verse 8 through 14. He kind of lays out this plan of attack, and he essentially tells his armor bearer, we're just going to play a little game of peek-a-boo with the Philistines. We're going to reveal ourselves to them. And depending on their response, that'll show us if God is going to give us the victory. He tells the armor bearer, we're going to reveal ourselves. And remember, the Philistines have the high ground. They've got the advantage. But Jonathan says, if they see us and they say, hey, stay where you are, we'll come to you, then we're just going to stay. We're not going to move. But if they say, hey, come on up to us, then we know God will give us the victory, which is the disadvantage. You'd rather them come to you than you come up to them. And yet that's not the plan at all. And so we see this unfold where the Philistines see them and they kind of mock them. They say, oh, the, the Hebrews have come out of their hiding. Well, come on up and we'll teach you a thing or two. Some translations have. Teach you a lesson, we'll show you something. Right? They're kind of trash talking with them. And so that at that moment, they know God will give them the victory. So they go up there and in this short area, they dominate the Philistines. And it was 20 on two. And yet God gives them a great victory. And I love this because yet again, Jonathan's confidence and trust in the Lord stand out. Verse 12, he says, come on, let's go get these Philistines. For the Lord, the Lord, the Lord has given them into our hands. See his confidence in God? His confidence in God is in direct contrast to Saul. Where's Saul here? Saul's nowhere to be found. He's back at that pomegranate cave, just hanging out, sitting back doing nothing. It's Jonathan who is demonstrating the true essentials of faith, something that if King Saul would have had, he likely would not have disobeyed God in the last chapter and and, and allowed him to become disqualified for his reign to continue and to be passed on to, to even Jonathan himself, And yet because he disobeyed, his line will become discontinued. It might be perhaps worth noting uh, just by way of application. This is yet again, another father-son dynamic in 1 Samuel. I found that really interesting. This is our third. Remember way back when we had Eli who was kind of a decent guy and he had these two sons, evil sons. And because Eli failed to discipline them Uh, he had his priestly line taken away and his sons just turned out to be really bad guys. And then you had Samuel who was a good guy and he had those sons that were evil. And now you've got Saul and Jonathan, Saul who's trending towards not being a good guy and Jonathan who is faithful to the Lord, is confident in God. It's interesting that in each of these three examples, the sons never walked in the footsteps of their father, didn't go down the same path they did. I was reflecting on that. And I think there's a warning and an encouragement with that. I think the warning, and it's so so humbling to think about this. It's a tough pill to swallow, but the warning here is that you can be a faithful father, a loving father someone who models what it looks like to follow after Jesus. And yet the reality is, is that there is no guarantee that your children will follow in your footsteps. There's no guarantee of that in the Bible, that only God can change hearts. And so the call here is to be faithful, keep doing what you're doing, keep pursuing Jesus but entrust, in entrust, in entrust in your child to the Lord. Pray your guts out and model what a, relation, a vibrant relationship with Jesus actually looks like. So the warning here is like, you don't get to control their hearts and save them. That's something that God and God alone can do. But then there's also an encouragement here. And it's actually the flip side of that. That if you've had a lousy father, if you've had a hypocritical father, if you've had an ungodly, disengaged father, maybe an abusive father, the encouragement to you this morning is that that doesn't automatically mean that you will follow in his same footsteps. That like Jonathan, you are not your father. You are not your father. And I don't know who needs to hear that today, but you can break the cycle. You can break generational dysfunction and not walk in the same footsteps as your father. That you can walk by the power and the grace of God. You can walk in the footsteps of truth and purity and faithfulness and wholeness and in grace. That you can be what 2 Corinthians 5 promises for every Christian. That if God has saved you, you can be a new creation. That the old is gone. The old is gone. Your past is gone is gone and you are new. That you can break the generational sin, not because you're so strong and mighty, but because God has made you new. That you're no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. You're no longer a slave to following in your father's footsteps that you can walk as a new creation in Christ and you can leave a legacy, a new legacy that can change generations to come. That you can say just along Jonathan, nothing can hinder the Lord. Do you believe that today? It's what the church needs. What the church needs are our fathers who have a sole focus of saying, look, my number one priority I'm gonna pass the baton of faith in God, love in God. I'm gonna pass this baton of confidence in God to my children and I'm gonna model it the best I can and I'm gonna pray that it sinks in. But we need fathers to take that role seriously, but we also need individuals who say that the generational sin stops with me. That by God's grace, God's power, it's gonna be a new legacy I'm going to leave. Whether your father was addicted to work or abused alcohol or drugs or had sexual sin or a critical spirit or whatever the case is, if you really believe that God can do anything, God can change generations to come and it can start with you. Well, let's move on here. The next thing that we see in this passage this victory that the Lord provided to Jonathan, it produced a couple of things among the Philistines. It produced terror and it produced confusion. Uh, Verse 15, it contains this Hebrew word for terror three different times. The, The more, you might not pick this up in your translation, but the more literal translation in the Hebrew actually reads this way. It says, terror broke out among all the troops, both in the camp and in the field, the outposts and the raiders were also terrified. The very quaked, and a terror from God ensued. There's a lot of terror. There's chaos. There's confusion and fear in the Philistine camp. But where's Saul? What about Saul? Where is he and, and what is he up to? He's not even there. He's still in the cave. It's verse 16. Saul's watchmen see what had happened. And they see kind of the commotion happening there. And the word that you see there is the, the Philistines were dispersing, right? You see that, that word in your text, that word could also be translated as melting, which is a, an interesting imagery. All along, we've seen these strong, powerful 36,000 Philistines and yet they're now turned to water because of the hand of the Lord. Saul's response for 17, we gotta count the men, right? Where are numbers? Someone sneak out and cause all this. What is happening here? He's already kind of losing grip on his kingdom. He doesn't even know where his own son is. Once he found out that Jonathan had left, there's this panic moment. He kind of freaks out. He's like, get the Ark of the Covenant. Like, we need the Ark of the Covenant. And we don't know exactly why he wanted the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, Hopefully it's not to replay the strategy in chapter four. Remember God's people didn't want God to lead them in battle against the Philistines. They wanted the Ark of the Covenant to lead them and to go before them. And that ended disastrously. So hopefully it's not what he wanted. Maybe he's just desperate. We don't really know because his focus quickly shifted away from the ark to the Philistine camp. Like more terror, more confusion is happening to the point where fearful Saul is like, okay, now's the time to go attack them. (laughs) And the reason why he said that is because the victory is basically already done. He gets there and the Philistines are like killing each other. The Israelites who ran and hid are, are now back with the army of the Israelites. And look at the result, verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day. The Lord saved Israel. It wasn't King Saul, it wasn't Jonathan. God saved his people. 36,000, verse 600. They have all these weapons. Israel's only had two swords. They had the military position of strength. They had a military position of weakness, and yet the Lord saved. The Lord saves. Man, that's an amazing phrase, isn't it? The amazing reality is that if you're here today and you are a Christian, meaning you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone for your salvation, not yourself, not in self-confidence, not in your good works or your church attendance, but in Jesus alone, because he got up on a cross and he paid for your sin and he died the death that you should have. And then three days later, God raised him from the dead. Like if you say, man, I, I stake my entire life on that reality, that truth to save me, then here's the good news is that God has actually saved you from something much worse than 36,000 angry Philistines. God has saved you from an eternity in hell apart from him. He has saved you from that because of his grace, because of Jesus. That is amazing. Like, so this phrase, nothing can hinder the Lord. Like we apply that even to the context of salvation, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving you. Each and every one of you. Like even if you're here today and you're thinking, no, not me, I, I've got way too much sin in my life. I've done way too many bad, despicable things. There's no way God can possibly save me. Chris, you don't know the half of it. You don't know the the horrible deeds that I've done. Yeah, I may not know all the details of your life, but I know what the word of God is proclaiming here. The word of God says, nothing can hinder the Lord, that God can save even you and make you clean and new and forgive you of your sins. All you need is to admit your need for a savior. Put your faith in Jesus. And turn from your sins. The Lord saves, He rescues, He delivers those who trust in Him. Well, that scene ends for us, but our time this morning does not. As we think about this passage in terms of some of the practical application, I want to just take a couple of minutes here and press into the theme of having confidence in the Lord. I was just struck by Jonathan's demonstration of this. And it made me contemplate, how do we cultivate a deep confidence in the Lord? We're told, we're told to have it, but how do we grow it? And this is important because I want you to think about this for a moment. When are, you, when are you most susceptible to falling into sin and throwing the commands of God to the side? When is that for you? You might think, well, it's when I'm most tired, It's when I'm most stressed, when I'm lonely, when I'm going through a trial, right? Those might be the immediate things, and those are all probably true and right, but let me suggest one other one that I think that's true for every single one of us. I think that we are most susceptible falling into sin when our confidence in the Lord is weakest. Because when you're tired, stressed, lonely, going through a trial, but your confidence in God is high, No temptation can touch you. You might be tired, but your confidence in the Lord to strengthen you is high. You're going to endure and resist that temptation. But if you have one of those things in combination with your confidence in God that's leaking, that's likely gonna result in a compromised Christian. Because there is a profound connection between how we live out the Christian life and our confidence level in the Lord, a profound connection. And because that's true, let me give us just four quick ways to cultivate confidence in God. Here's the first one. The way we, we grow this is to ground our confidence in God's character and not our circumstances. This really stuck out to me in Jonathan, uh, his example here, his, because his circumstances should have created great fear right? He was severely outnumbered, military position of weakness. His father is a poor model of this. And yet he didn't ground his confidence in his circumstances, but in something that does not change, which is God's character. And you and I have a a daily battle of misplacing our confidence. We are daily tempted to putting our confidence in things in people, in our feelings, and in our situations, rather than God himself. And when we do that, we quickly realize that none of those things can hold the weight of our confidence. They weren't meant to, that they shift, they change. A lot of those things are outside of our control. And so our confidence goes like this. And yet the call here is to have confidence in the Lord, not in temporal things, meaning you're grounding it in who he is. And our God does not change. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So when you wake up in the mornings and you look yourself in the mirror and you think about all that you have on your plate for that day, all the pressures and the stresses and a busy schedule, don't put your confidence in your ability to manage that or how you feel. Put your confidence, preach to yourself in that mirror. My confidence is in the Lord in who he is, in his faithfulness, in his power, in his wisdom, and watch to see your trust in God grow. Here's the second thing. I would encourage us to build our confidence on the, uh, in the Lord on an array of theological truths about God. What I mean by this is that we tend to love and favor like one aspect of God or one attribute or characteristic of God at the expense of ignoring or paying very little attention to the other ones. Like we might be all about God's power, right? He can do anything. And we might put our confidence in that. And that's good, that's fine. But there's a deeper sense of confidence that you can have in the Lord if you build on that. Not just putting your confidence in God because of his omnipotence, but what about his infinite knowledge? What about his sovereignty? What about his love for you? What about all of these other characteristics about who God is and see your confidence in God grow? I think about my my own marriage. Like if my love and intimacy with my wife is just built on one aspect of Lindsay, like that she's very intelligent, like that's gonna be fine. But what about all these other things that are true about her? That she's loyal, that she loves the Lord, that she's a servant, right? Adding all of these different aspects is going to deepen my intimacy and even my confidence in her and our love for one another. Same is true with the Lord, which means you need to get into this book. You need to know God. You need to read about who he is, about his characteristics and about these promises that he's laid out for you so you can grow in your knowledge of him that can result in a greater confidence in who he truly is. Thirdly here, another way to grow our confidence in the Lord is to trust him with the long view in mind. Okay, follow me here. I think we do a a decent job in trusting God with eternity, right? We trust that God will bring us home with him forever and ever. I also think that we do a pretty good job trusting in God with today, maybe even tomorrow. But there's another category there that I want to challenge us with. It's about having the longer view past tomorrow, but before eternity begins. Like that space, that difficult category, it involves the unknown. It involves the future. It involves things that we can't control. My question is, do you trust God even with those things? Like, let me give you a couple of questions here, maybe to to bring this home a little bit. Do you trust God? even if the trial that you're walking through has no end point. Before eternity begins, but it's well after tomorrow. Do you trust him with that? Do you trust God with your child's salvation? When and if that occurs? Do you trust God with your health issues or a loved one's health issue? Do you trust God with our country's future? Whatever that might look like. Right? All, all of these things involve potential trials, things that we can't always control. And it's in that space. Those are beautiful, beautiful opportunities to deepen your confidence in God. It says, man, I don't know what, what the future holds, but I'm gonna trust God anyways because my trust and confidence in the Lord, it doesn't have an expiration date. It doesn't have any caveats. It doesn't have any disclaimers, right? I'm gonna trust in God no matter what. So use those to fuel and deepen your confidence in the Lord. Here's the last thing. I'll close with this, is to express deep devotion to God. We see this with Jonathan. He was all in for the Lord. And and the two, I think, feed off each other. The more devoted you are to God, the deeper your confidence will be in him. And the deeper your confidence is in the Lord, the more devoted you'll actually be. And so be devoted to him. Be committed to him as you're walking through trials Stay faithful to the Lord. Be devoted with him with your time, with with spending time with him in in his word and, and your prayer life and how you serve others and how you're kind to others. And like live out your faith in authentic and genuine and faithful ways and see your confidence in God grow because you'll experience the depth of who he is. Church, let's continue to be a people who trust in the Lord because we're confident in who he is, that by God's grace, we can be a people who say with confidence, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Let's pray together. Lord, we do, oh God, give you praise for who you are. Lord, we thank you that as we search the scriptures and have an open posture of growing in our knowledge of you, Lord, that you you meet us there. Lord, you expand and challenge how we see you, how we view you. Lord, I pray as as we think about trusting in you, Lord, I pray that, that we would understand we will only trust in you if we have confidence in you. So God, help us to grow in our understanding of your countless faithful deeds throughout all of history. And Lord, no matter what we face, help us to lean upon you. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.